It's been a little while since we last had an episode on removable prosthetics, and today's guest is Dr. Andreas Artopoulos. Now, he was recommended to me by Rupert Monkhouse, who we all know and love from the previous episodes he's done, the man behind Impression Club, of course. So just a little hat tip to Rupert for recommending Dr. Andreas, because according to Rupert, Andreas taught him everything he knows. And I was blown away by the knowledge, but also some of the gems that he gave that are really going to save us time. Like, I was really debating what to title this episode. Episode because it had so much breadth and actually when I was recording with him I was supposed to by the script asking so many more questions about different types of dentures and partial dentures and overlay dentures but we just had such a great time geeking out on complete dentures that the whole focus of this episode came about complete dentures but in a way that no matter which experience level you're at you're going to take something away for example we discussed everything from checking the border extensions to the vertical dimension to discussing the base materials that are available and simple things like ensuring a comfortable fit at the day of delivery the biggest takeaway for me as a, someone who's really into occlusion is the protrusive dental pearl for today. So hello Protrusorati, I'm Jazz Galanti and every episode I will give you a protrusive dental pearl and today's pearl is from the main episode and it's kind of surprising like I spend a lot of time when I'm doing complete dentures which nowadays is not as many as I used to just because of the population that you treat and the different demographics etc. So I used to spend a bit of time with balanced articulation making sure I follow the bull rule, adjust the buckle of the uppers and lingual of the lowers to get a lingualized occlusion and an occluding scheme. But the pearl I have for you is that actually Andreas just goes for a group function occlusion on his dentures and you'll see why he does that if you're spending too much time on the occlusion side then maybe you are wasting your time and there are other aspects of complete dentures where we should be focusing our time to get better outcomes for our patients oh and just as Andreas says later in this episode enter bolus exit balance because ultimately when there is a bolus between the complete denture set then all those dots and lines you work on are kind of irrelevant just some latest updates before we join the main episode with andreas that recently i delivered a webinar called quick and slick rubber dam i showed so many videos of different scenarios of finding a, a predictable framework of applying rubber dam like quadrant isolation in a fairly efficient time that's now been uploaded to the premium clinical section and in the chat your dr your from ghana africa he asked to see all those little mini videos I had of different cases and different examples of rubber dam isolation, he wanted them to be uploaded to the premium section. So I said, what the hell, let's do it. So I've decided to create like a little case bank. So the story behind this is one of the best extraction courses I ever did was with Dr. Neki Jamal. He has a fantastic online course on wisdom teeth extractions, which I'll link to below and you can get 15% off that using the code protrusive. And so uh, what I love about his course is that when I need to extract a wisdom tooth, I'll look at my radiograph, I'll see what I'm up against, mesoangular, distangular, whatever. And I'll pretty much find a similar case on his course, like a case bank he's got, so I can watch that video before I see my patient just to get some ideas and inspiration. And it's good to see the techniques that he applies. So in a similar fashion, I'm gonna upload lots of different rubber dam scenarios to the Protrusive app, which of course you can access on your laptop via www.protrusive.app or iOS Android. And you'll have different scenarios like when the coronoid process is in the way and you can't get a clamp on, what do you do? Or what if your floss and rubber dam keep its tearing? Which dam to use, which not to use? You'll get all those in the case bank. Uh, and of course, if you want to watch the full one hour webinar, which is eligible for one hour CE credit or one hour of CPD, then you can head over to the app as well to get that. So I hope you enjoy that rubber dam goodness. Let's now join Dr. Andreas. Andreas Artopoulos, welcome to the Petrusa Dental Podcast, my friend. How are you? Thank you. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Yes, great. It's so nice to speak to you about a big topic, which I love, occlusion, but specifically applied to removable prosthetics. Let's not get into implants. Let's just go to complete sure. dentures, partial dentures, and that kind of stuff. At least that gives us a little bit more of a niche and to, to talk more focused about it. Uh, before we delve deeper into that, 
tell us about yourself. I see you're, you've got the form labs behind you. You're in a lab. Tell us about you and your work. How far back do you want to go? I, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit older. As spicy than I as look. you can make it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was born and raised in Thessaloniki in Greece, uh, where I studied dentistry. I graduated in uh, 2006. And then immediately within a couple of months, I moved to London, UK. I practiced there in a the general practice for a couple of years before I enrolled to my first uh, master's course in removable prosthodontics at King's College London. And when I finished that, I, I, I loved it so much that I decided to stick around and do a second master's. So I did a second master's at uh, maxillofacial and craniofacial technology. I don't know if you know what that is, because a lot of people don't. Uh, is it like, uh, I, don't want, I don't mean to just <laughs> simplify it to one appliance, but like obturators and replacement prosthetics yes, of, of aftermath cancer and stuff? It's, it's all of that Trauma. and a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So we're dealing mm -hmm. with uh, facial prosthetics. It's mostly for oncology cases, but also trauma cases and uh, congenital defects. So we can do any kind of uh, extraoral or intraoral prosthesis, uh, like an eye, an ear, a nose, a finger, obturator. I mean, that must be so rewarding. I mean, we do teeth and we get a huge it buzz out it of it, is. right? But when you do someone's eyes as well, the nose, that must be the nicest feeling. It's fantastic. I, I love it. I wish there was more cases to do because it's it's very niche market, obviously, and uh, even more so in a, in a country like Cyprus, where I'm based now. Uh, we don't have that many cases, but it's 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 the one thing I love uh, most. But I was lucky enough because in uh, my department at King's, uh, the, the whole department was uh, heavily focused on digital technologies uh, beyond the conventional prosthetics. So anything to do with uh, 3D scanning and 3D printing and 3D planning of uh, surgeries. So I got uh, heavily invested in that as well. And uh, after I finished my second master's, I, I stayed around at King's for uh, a few more years. And I, I took on uh, various teaching and uh, research posts uh, until between 2012 and 2016. My, my research was uh, mostly focused on digital technologies, uh, anything to do with uh, face scanners, 3D printing, uh, and later on uh, augmented reality uh, devices like uh, Google Glass. I uh, tried to develop some clinical applications for augmented reality. And then I, I moved to Cyprus, where we set up a private practice and laboratory with uh, my wife. We specialize in removable pros, implant prosthetics, maxillofacial prosthetics, and my wife does uh, perio and implants. And um, after a couple of years, I also I was lucky enough, uh, together with uh, my colleague uh, Dimitris Neofitu, to set up the first uh, service in Cyprus for 3D planning and 3D printing. So we're doing uh, lots of uh, implant planning cases, orthognathic surgery planning, and uh, some oncology cases. And since uh, 2019, I started teaching at the local university, European University Cyprus in Nicosia, and I am course coordinator for removal prosthodontics. As I told you earlier, I have a five and a half year old twin, so it's it's quite a busy schedule. It's a that busy I have. time. You're doing all these uh, <laughs> amazing things in the lab, uh, but more power to you. That that sounds absolutely brilliant. And uh, what else can I? I love video games. That's uh, really perhaps. What do you play? What did you play yesterday? What did you play this last week? What have you been playing? I, I, I play everything from Atari 2600 from PS5. Uh, I mean, you can see my headset is the, the PS5 headset. So. <laughs> uh, I hardly have the time to, to play as much as I would like to, but uh, I like to, to play a little bit at nights after everyone's asleep and just to wind down and, <laughs> you know, after all the work. And before I go to bed. So. And did you get your kids into gaming yet? Like they're, they're five and a half. And I'm always thinking nowadays, they're saying your know, screen time is bad. And I'm thinking there'll come a point where my, my, my son's going to ask for some video games. And what do we do? Like you love video games. My childhood is a big part. I don't do much now, but as a childhood, I did. What, what's your stance on your kids playing video games? I think I, I would love them to, to get involved because uh, I strongly feel that uh, video games nowadays are, uh, can offer a lot more than uh, spending time on a uh, television, for example. Uh, I tried to get them started with uh, an old Atari game and uh, Nintendo NES, 
because they're simpler games, easier to, to, to grasp. They, they seem to, to like it, but they, they've not been asking for it. So uh, I don't want to push them in. I'm just waiting for the right time. But somehow we managed with my wife to keep them uh, away from uh, tablets and uh, smartphones and things like that. So they, they, will, they will watch TV, but they, they might go for a month without asking it. So if they don't ask, we will not turn it on. And it's always regulated. We don't want them to spend too much time in front of a screen. But trying not, not to be too, too strict about it as well. And obviously, you, you have to regulate the content. That's the most important thing. So I'm not saying tablets are bad, but you, you have to spend the time to regulate what content they're into. Very true, especially at that impressionable age. Let's now talk about a, a big part of what you do, removal aesthetics, <laughs> uh, and particularly occlusion. And uh, you know, there's so, you know, so many different places that we can explore. So let's start with, and I'll, I'll kind of guide you uh, where we can serve the Petrus variety the best. Uh, complete dentures. Let's say the complete dentures have come back. Let's skip the wax jaw restoration stage for a moment. We'll come back to it later. Let's say the, the complete dentures have arrived fresh. Okay, they're ready to go inside. A dentures patient now bites together with their complete dentures. What should the occlusion look like with respect to class one, class two, class three? Because there is a thing I've seen in the past where dentists, they try to make all complete dentures class one. And I have been taught that perhaps we shouldn't be doing this. What is your stance on this? And, and how can we help the dentist figure out, okay, what incisal classification should I make my complete dentures? This is a, this is a very interesting uh, topic you chose to, to get started. First of all, to answer the first part of your question, uh, when the, the dentures are processed and finished and you're, you're going to place them in the mouth uh, for the first time, uh, if you haven't already done so when using the permanent bases for your jaw registration, if it's the first time that you're going to fit those bases in the patient's mouth, the first thing you need to do is to ensure that they're comfortable. So you place uh, each denture individually by itself in the patient's mouth and you, you press down towards the tissues in the second premolar to first molar region where the mastication occurs and uh, make sure that they're comfortable for the patient. Uh, before you even do that, you can visually uh, assess and uh, you can manually check the fitting surface to make sure there are no spicules of acrylic or anything that feels sharp. If there's anything at all on the fitting surface that feels sharp on your finger, it means that it will feel painful in the patient's mouth a hundred times over because the, the mucosa is much more sensitive than our fingertips. So first, we need to ensure that the fitting surfaces are nice and smooth, and then we can and place can, them. Can I say, in, in, sure. in case someone was multitasking and they didn't like yeah. uh, and they missed that bit, that's something I, I I only learned a few years after in school. It was Lyndon Cabo who who, who showed me this, and I, I pressed the denture down, and the patient goes, "Ow!" And I was like, "Hmm, I wonder what's that? Where's that happening?" And he came over and he just ran his glove finger. Yeah. Ah, I found it. There's a spike yes. here. And to me, I thought, okay, maybe the technician would sort this out, but there's got, they are doing a hundred things. And that little tiny spicule sometimes gets missed. But, you know, like you said, we visually inspect and with your finger. And it's, yes. it's, you know, I, I almost felt like I wasn't, I almost felt like I wasn't allowed to adjust that part, but it just makes sense, obviously, that, you know, you get rid of that sharp bit that's digging into the mucosa. It just makes so much common sense, obviously. Yes. And you can, uh, even uh, you can uh, get a square gauze and just run the gauze uh, gently over the surface and see if it catches somewhere. This is also another tip. Very good. I haven't done uh, that one before. To, to identify any sharp edges. To, to be honest with you, I, I strictly instruct my dental technicians not to touch the fitting surface. I don't want them to do any adjustments. I prefer to do any adjustments on the fitting surface myself. So that's that's one thing. So uh, maybe it's not that the, the lab didn't bother doing it. Maybe they they agree with me that they shouldn't be doing it. It's something that uh, has to be done clinically. And obviously the, the next thing to do is uh, use uh, some pressure indicating paste to ensure that the fit is uh, correct and that you have even pressure and you don't have any pressure points. Which, which brand do you like? The means I think, is the, the brand. It's the, the standard pressure indicating paste. And uh, now the okay. thing is that it's, it's getting a bit trickier to get hold of it, at least in uh, some countries. That, uh, I'm sure you can find it easily in the UK, but we're having trouble getting it for the university here. So uh, here's another clinical tip. What you can use instead 
is the, the catalyst from the zinc oxide and eugenol impression based. It will behave in a very similar way. Of course, you can use a light bodied silicon or something like that, but it's much more expensive and it takes uh, much mm-hmm. longer to set. So with, with any of those, it's, it's not so easy to remove it afterwards. So you have to be careful mm-hmm. if you use either the catalyst from the zinc oxide eugenol paste or the pressure indicating paste. Uh, the pressure indicate paste, the, the kit comes with an orange solvent that helps to remove it. So uh, that's handy. But uh, uh, I'll tell you what I use, uh, Andreas. I use a PSI by Coltine, pressure spot indicated yeah. space by Coltine. Yeah. Is, is that a good thing? Do you like that? Yes, I mean, the, it's, it's not the, the material that will make a huge difference so long as it's something that's uh, quite uh, viscous and uh, it's easy to remove and you can have it in a thin cross-section. It, it's not going to make a difference. It, adds, uh, it behaves in a similar manner. So mm-hmm. it's not uh, like the, there's a right or wrong material to use, but uh, obviously okay. it has a lot to do with the cost and how easy and quick it is to apply and how quick and easy it is to remove afterwards. I mean, so easy to peel away. That's what I love about it. But, yes, but it probably yes, costs a lot more than the, the mes- mes- It does, probably. yes, yes. <laughs> So we check and we'll make sure that there is a comfortable fit on the fitting surface. And then the next thing you need to do is, uh, again, if you haven't already done so by using permanent bases, uh, you have to check all the peripheries. So you have to check the border extension. You have to check the border morphology. And again, applying some kind of uh, pressure indicating the media and make sure that you're not overextended. Make sure that your borders are uh, nice and rounded and smooth. And uh, once you're, you're done with one denture, you remove it. And you place the other one and you repeat the whole process. Let's talk about this, Andrew. Let's, let's talk yeah. about this micro step. Sorry, I'm going to keep interjecting because I feel like I want to extract so much from you. So complete dentures, as you know, is, is now a pretty much a postgraduate discipline. Right, we don't get to do enough in our undergrad. So even yes. these little things, which you know we think are simple, we, we need to explore this. So in terms of checking the border extensions, is it by plate? Let's, let's say the upper one. You place the upper, make sure it's uh, seated, and then uh, do you hold the, the the cheek and the mucosa and try and take the denture off and see if it's overextended, or do you keep it in place and just get the patient to do like uh, exaggerated like ooh and e movements? What is the best way to check that that part of it, the extensions? Again, there is no right or wrong way. There's many different techniques that you can employ to achieve the same goal. What I like to do is ensure my denture is fully seated and it's comfortable, and I gently hold it in place. I gently rest my finger, for example, in the center of the palate, and I start pulling the patient's lips and cheeks and see if I feel any movement. That's one way to do it. Another way is obviously to let the patient do all the facial expressions, and that again will show you. And you can visually inspect, for example, if you're if you're overextended in one particular area, by gently retracting the cheek, you can see the, the mucosa is being pushed up from the denture border and you can see some blanching maybe perhaps in that area. So there's all, all these different techniques you have to combine. Uh, and of course, the use of the pressure indicating paste uh, on top of that. You can combine all these techniques to ensure that you have the correct extension. It's not so hard to do, to be honest with you, but I totally agree that uh, maybe the, the biggest problem is the, the lack of enough patience to be able to demonstrate all these things clinically to, to our students at an undergraduate level. Uh, so in an ideal world, I would have uh, my own complete denture patient. I would uh, do the procedure step by step. The students would be observing. And after each step, the, the students would go on to their own patients and do the same thing. But this is it's, it's impossible to do nowadays because you don't you have too many students and not enough patients. Mm-hmm. Especially fully indentured patients uh, yes. willing and able to come to a dental school. It's, it's very difficult. Yes, connects yes, indeed. We make sure that the, the fit and the border extension of our dentures are correct. And only then are we allowed to start uh, looking at the occlusion. And it's, I think it's a very important step at, at that stage. You don't just ask the patient to bite down. You, you have to guide the mandible in the retreated position uh, to make sure you have correct positioning, you have correct interdigitation at the desired position of the mandible. If you ask the patient to close, they might easily protrude or lateral protrude and do something like that, and you, you won't be any wiser. 
what is your preferred technique to, to guide them? I'm sure you're going to come on to this next anyway, but uh, do you do like a, just uh, guide their chin? Do you get them the to curl their thrust. tongue back like you did the red straight? Yeah, short. Chin, tell us what chin, you'd like to do. The, the chin thrust is my preferred technique. Uh, and again, there, there's many different techniques, uh, but th- there is no right or wrong. Uh, one clinical tip, which I think is quite important in order to be able to get the patient in the retrieval position in the first place, is uh, you, you want the starting position of the mandible to be as close to the position you want it to go to begin with. What I mean by that, very often we'll have patients relaxed. We know the rest position is a few millimeters uh, more open than the retreated position and obviously more forwards. But I think it's wrong in that uh, situation to ask the patient to open wide so you can then try to guide the mandible back into the hinge axis movement and get it to close in the retreated position. If the patient is almost closed, start from there. Don't instruct your patient to open as wide as they can because obviously that will get the mandible out of the terminal hinge axis and move it more anteriorly. And then you'll have to, to do extra work to get the mandible back again. So why do that? So patients are usually... Make sure, yeah, make sure they're only, slight, teeth are only slightly apart before you guide them. Uh, now, for any students listening, why is it that you like this joint position uh, compared to any other joint position to, uh, to have your uh, patient to, to function and, and design the bite around? Don't get me wrong, this is not my a matter of preference. This is, by, by textbook, this is the only position of the mandible that you can set up the teeth in a complete denture because it's the only reproducible position of the mandible. So uh, if it was any other position, you wouldn't be able to guarantee every time you see the patient between visits that uh, you get them to close in the same position so it would be impossible to work. We, we do know from uh, anthropological studies that uh, in dentate patients, the ICP will either coincide with a retreated contact position or it may be uh, one or two millimeters more anterior to that in a dentate subject. In a dentulous patient, we, we have no idea where the ICP used to be. So there, there's two scenarios. Either the ICP used to coincide with a retruded contact position, in which case by guiding the, by setting up the teeth in the retruded position, our job is done. Or if the ICP used to be a little bit more anteriorly, one or two millimeters, the difference is so small that we know the patients can adapt to that. So it's, it's not a matter of uh, opinion or, or you don't have a choice where you have to set up the teeth or complete dentures in the retruded position. I've heard before, and also in the comments on YouTube, uh, I've seen one patient like this for under a consultant-led clinic at, at, at Guy's when I was uh, doing my DCT, where one patient just couldn't tolerate it. He just couldn't tolerate it. And, and maybe he had a big slide in his past. Maybe he had a very large slide. Uh, have you found a patient who just couldn't tolerate the retreated position and then you had to pick uh, an arbitrary position to set things up because that's the best that you could do? Has, has this scenario ever propped up for you? I haven't come across a case like this, luckily enough. So, thank God. Yeah, I've only had it. I've only seen it once, and, and that was like a nightmare to to do. So yes, yeah, so, I can imagine. Uh, we I need imagine. a reproducible position to to work with that you can guide the patient. So yeah, uh, that, that is the. Hopefully, none of you see a patient like this. <laughs> yes, because uh, it's the, practically very difficult or impossible to to proceed with a situation like this. Mm-hmm. I, I would have thought in a case like this, it might make sense to consider non-anatomic teeth like uh, monoplane occlusion to allow them some uh, leeway. Around the, yeah, 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 some freedom of movement. Fine. So we're now we've, we know you've answered why we, the textbook recommends using a reproducible position, and you're going to guide the patient. You're using the the chin lift or the the guiding the chin a little bit. Is is the curling the tongue back? What do you think about that technique uh, as an alternative technique? Uh, I don't think there is a right or wrong technique. Uh, it's a matter of uh, personal preference, and it's a matter of uh, what might work with your particular patient. I mean, uh, we all know there are some patients who may prove a little bit uh, harder to get into the treated position. But to, to be honest with you, over the years, I, I haven't found many cases where that proved to be such a big challenge that so as to make it insurmountable. I mean, it's just a matter of uh, practice. Uh, it's a matter of getting your patients relaxed. And uh, many times it's a matter, uh, here's another clinical tip of 
don't don't say anything to your patient. Don't don't tell them. Oh, I want you to try and put your mouth as far back as you can, or something like that. Because patients will try to help, and by doing so, a lot of patients will actually protrude the mandible rather than relax and allow you to guide them into the, through the position. I, I don't tell them anything. I just uh, a good grab of their chin and tell them, let me let me close your mouth. And, that's it good that is a top tip right there brilliant yeah so and once they close together let's say that how often is an interesting question how often would you expect with your level of precision and whatnot how often would you expect things just to be absolutely perfect and you got contacts on both sides left and right or do you think there's a usually some adjustment to do once you've guided their chin and you get them together is there any adjustment to do obviously this varies a lot on the quality of the bite registration uh, the skill of the dentist the skill of the technician uh, yes. but you know i know what you do is is a much higher level i believe from what i've uh, uh, heard about you Rupert talks so highly about you and what he says and uh, you taught him uh, a lot inspired him so obviously you're uh, much more uh, experienced what, what about for the inexperienced dentist would you think they're expecting to do some adjustments uh, I think it would be sensible to expect to do some adjustments but uh, I think the best tip is to prevent getting yourself in that situation in the first place and uh, there are ways to do that and obviously the, the more time you spend at the jaw registration appointment I often uh, tell my students that it's perfectly fine to use two visits for the jaw registration Simply because it's it's too much to do. It's too much for the patient and it's too much for the operator as well. And it's quite absurd to expect someone with very little experience in complete denture prosthodontics to do all of that in a single visit. And the thing is that the, the longer you take, uh, the more tired the patient gets, making everything even harder. And then the wax starts getting softer and things start moving around and it becomes a nightmare. So don't put yourself in that situation in the first place. So my advice is that, and this is not my personal technique, this is the way we were taught at the King's at the postgraduate program, to, to actually split the workload over two visits. So the, the first tip is that you, you really need to have a well-supported, stable and retentive basis to do the George accurately. And the best way to do that is to, to go for permanent basis permanent heat polymerized PMMA basis, not record basis. The, the reason for that is... So the is record bases are the wax ones, right? Or shellac base? Is shellac base count as a, uh, as a sturdy base or that, is that, that uh, would still, still uh, temporary? That would still count as a temporary base. So we were taught at King's and we were teaching and I'm still teaching to, to use permanent base material. The, the reason for that is uh, any kind of uh, record base, whether it's wax or shellac or acrylic or the light polymerized stuff, in order to be able to retrieve it from the master cast, you need to, to block out any undercuts. Otherwise, either the base will get destroyed or the cast will get destroyed. Which means if you have blocked out undercuts when you place it in the patient's mouth, it's possibly not going to be retentive. And you, you don't want to have to do all the difficult steps of the jaw registration while having to hold the denture in position as well with your fingers. It, it would have been feasible if we had 14 fingers instead of 10, but we don't, so we have to deal with that. Because imagine that trying to hold the upper base in position, trying to hold the lower base in position, and trying to grab the patient's mandible and guide them into retrieval position as well. You just need more fingers. So since we run out of fingers, the, the next best thing to do is to go for a permanent base. So the first thing you need to do on the, the jaw registration appointment, if you have prescribed the permanent basis, is to ensure exactly the same way we, we mentioned earlier about uh, the finished denture. Make sure they have a good fit, they're comfortable, they're correctly extended. And, and if they don't, there's plenty of time for you to, to do something about it later on before the denture is finished. Before we continue with that now, uh, let's say someone has gone for a temporary base, so it's like wax or shellac or, or, or whatever, and they're struggling to keep it in place. And now they're in this rubbish scenario. Could they use a denture fixative, denture adhesive to just give them a bit of uh, help in keeping the, the base secure to aid them with a jaw registration? Definitely. It's definitely better than nothing. But on the other hand, this will only address the, the lack of retention. If, you're, if your denture's base is unstable as well and it can move at horizontal level, it might even uh, contribute to some error because uh, it, it will have to do with exactly where you position it in the patient's mouth and hold it in that true. particular position. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you, if, if you use temporary bases, record bases, it doesn't necessarily mean that your finished denture will be unretentive. It's just that you, you won't know. You won't know until the denture is finished. And you don't want to have uh, that kind of surprise at the placement appointment. And also, it's not nice for the patient as well that they've been waiting for such a long time to have their final dentures. And uh, on the day that you're supposed to give them the dentures, what you may end up doing is taking a big pair and grinding lots of acrylic out of the nicely polished dentures that uh, they just expected to, to be just fitted and that's it. So by using permanent bases, you can do all the work at an earlier stage when the patient actually expects you to be doing stuff. And they don't even know that this thing you're working on is going to become their final denture. So they, they will not even notice that you're doing anything and they won't mind. And it also makes that the placement appointment much easier because you've already done most of the work and you will know that your dentures will be retentive, they will be stable, they will be well supported. And all you have to worry about is the occlusion. Okay, but mm. uh, we're getting carried away. Let's let's go back to the George appointment. So <laughs> the, the first thing that I recommend is to prescribe permanent bases and then you, you carry these over to finish. So if you have permanent bases, you adjust them, you check them first and make sure that they're fitting correctly, they're retentive. So the next thing you need to do is to start working on the upper denture and establish the lip support. This is very important because the, the amount of uh, lip support is one of the most reliable clinical indicators about the position of the anterior teeth. Uh, we have all these guidelines uh, we use in the lab, like uh, the position of the incisive papilla, etc., etc. But uh, clinically, the most reliable guide is the, the lip. If the lip looks normal, it's a good indication that this is where the upper teeth need to go. So you, you have to establish the lip support and then decide on how much tooth you want to have showing the, the anterior uh, incisal edges. You, you cannot do it the other way around because obviously changing the position of the wax frame in the anteroposterior direction will affect the amount of tooth showing as well. So you will end up going around in circles. So establish the lip support first and then you check. And we know that for most people you want to be showing one or two millimeters of wax below the upper lip. Now, th this is important. At, at rest. At rest, yes, at rest. Th this is important because it will not apply to everyone. I mean, some people uh, naturally... Uh, the, when they're at rest, they will not show any of the RPT. Some people will show one third of uh, the anteriors. So you, you have to judge it uh, on a case uh, per case basis. So once we've established the amount of teeth showing as well, then we can use uh, Fox's uh, bite plane to establish the orientation of the occlusal plane. The amount of teeth showing will give us the level of the occlusal plane, how high or how low it's going to be. And then we use the tragal line and the interpupillary line as a guide, assuming the patient does not present some gross uh, facial asymmetry. And I say this because I deal with these cases as well, so it gets a little bit trickier. So in most patients, you want the occlusal plane to be parallel to the elatregal line and the interpupillary line. So once, once you've done all that, you, you don't want to mess with the upper rim anymore. You want to leave it alone and only work on the lower rim. So then we place the, the lower denture in the mouth. Again, we make sure that it's well-fitting, it's comfortable, it's correctly extended. And then we, before we start measuring anything, we need to make sure that the two wax rims, the upper and the lower rim, are parallel to each other. So when the patient is biting down on them at any OVD, that they will have good contact throughout their whole occlusal surface. Rather and than just hitting at the heels by the, you know, which the, is, the which is what molar, happens normally. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. the, the reason this happens is that the dental laboratories tend to overbuild the wax rims and they tend to overextend them posteriorly. I mean, you're not going to be replacing the third molar, so I don't need any wax to be there in the first place. It's fine that they do that, and I understand that the reason they do that is because it's clinically easier to remove wax than have to add wax onto the rim. It's it's simpler. You just uh, use a hot spatula, and it's it's much quicker. So it's it's fine that they do that, so long as we're aware that we want the rims to occupy the space that the natural teeth eventually will. So we don't want the rims to be too thick. We don't want them to be too high. So once we make sure that we have uh, contact between the rims, 
we can make a, an initial measurement of the, the, the freeway space. And if we find that we, we have a little bit of freeway space, we can just take a quick jaw edge there and then, and then stop, let the patient go. So we've established the lip support, we've established the level and the orientation of our occlusal plane. And all we want to do is make sure that we have good contact between the rims to take a quick George. We let the patient go and we take our working casts and we articulate them. We mount them on the articulator with this quick okay, George. I just, I just want to pick before you consider, because that little nuance bit, different ways of registering the upper wax rim and the lower wax rim. Uh, one way that I initially learned was making little notches in the lower and then squirting uh, PVS. But then another cool way, which I really liked, Sarah Tabiat Paul showed me, is getting the wax knife and, and, and twisting it to make like a little cup or a dome inside the, 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 the lower rim. And then the, the PVS material will actually sink into the dome and have like a, a positive so that it's easy to seat the wax, uh, the, the PVS registration with the the, the, the wax rim, basically. Uh, are there any ways that are superior? Are there any ways that you like to record or teach the recording of the upper and lower wax rims? Look, there, there, there is no right or wrong answer here. Again, it's different techniques. Uh, as long as you manage to uh, locate and uh, lock the upper with a lower rim, that, that's all I care about. Uh, I don't mind if what you What do you think about squash bite or... then? Just just heating it and just get them to bite together and the wax is stuck with the wax. What do you this, think about that way? This this is not a good idea. And I mean, it might, it might work in some cases, but uh, you have to account for the displaceability of the mucosa. So you can never ensure that the wax is evenly sheeted throughout the whole surface, in which case that would not matter. So you might end up with tipping one of, usually the mandibular denture, it's going to be the mandibular one. So it might tip during the, the actual registration. So this is not recommended. Uh, people have to understand, I believe, that the, the wax on the wax rims is not our registration material. This is just a block that uh, is meant to support our registration material, whatever that may be, whether it's uh, heated wax or whether it's zinc oxide and eugenol paste, you can use that, whether it's a uh, silicon registration material. Any of the materials are fine. Each one has its own uh, advantages and disadvantages. For, for example, silicon is much easier to use. You just press the button and it comes out. But you have to be quick because they, they, they are fast-setting materials. Zinc oxide and eugenol is very rigid, so I, I like that. But it takes ages to set and your patient might slightly move while you're waiting for it to set and you don't want that either. Wax, you just have to get it at the right temperature and uh, if you do, it works uh, beautifully. Uh, but then again, in a, in a country like Cyprus, uh, you don't want to use wax for your registrations because during transfer from and to the laboratory, things may go wrong. Uh, it gets really hot outside. So uh, I, I always teach my students, uh, while at the unit, try all the materials available and see how they work and uh, see which one works best for you. With regards to what kind of shape you're going to cut onto the wax rims, whether it's a notch or, or a box or a little groove or whatever, it doesn't. I don't think it makes a huge difference. So long as you have some kind of feature to be able to locate the two rims together. Here's another tip for you. What I like to do is apply, after I cut my notches, I go for notches. Uh, just make sure they're not parallel to each other because that may allow the rims to, to slide sideways. You know what I mean? You have to make sure that they're, they're not parallel. And then I use a, I apply a thin smear of Vaseline on one of the two rims. And then if I'm using PVS, I will use a bit of tray adhesive for silicon onto the other rim. So I know that my jaw registration material will stick securely on one of the rims, but will be easy to remove from the other. So I, I might struggle otherwise to remove both dentures locked together from a patient's mouth. It's not very comfortable always if the patient has a small mouth opening. But this way I can separate them, remove them individually and reassemble them together. And then you have to check, you have to check that they lock securely in place and you have to uh, allow your patient to rest a little bit, maybe have a quick rinse and put them back in the mouth and guide them again in the treated position and make sure that they will go straight into the same position. And because if they don't, obviously you, you have a, a small error there. But mm -hmm. I, as, I, as I was saying, if, if I'm doing the, the two-visit technique, I'm not going to bother too much about that. I just want a quick registration without being too fast about the OVD either. 
you want a quick registration to mount those uh, wax bases with the working cast. And then on the articulator, it's very easy to make sure that they're perfectly parallel, that you have perfect contact between them throughout their whole surface, which I, which I think is important to avoid uh, introducing errors. And then on the second visit, uh, you get the patient back in, and then you, you have the, the lip support and the occlusal plane ready. You can do a quick check again to confirm that the patient is happy with this amount of lip support and this amount of tooth showing. But what are you getting, what are you getting back from, from the lab, though, for the second time? What are the, what are the lab, uh, have they added anterior teeth only? What, what have they done? You can set up some anterior teeth if you want uh, to, to check the, the aesthetics and your tooth mold selection, but you, you haven't done that part already. Uh, I'm talking about undergraduate level, okay, mm. or your, your first few cases. So... What sure. I will ask the lab to do or what I will do myself is uh, articulate the working cast and make sure my wax streams are perfectly parallel and I have perfect contact throughout the whole occlusal table. That's what I will ask. And then I, I will get them back. I will place them in the mouth and then in the, in the second visit, I will just do a quick check about the lip support and the amount of teeth showing. And then I will start measuring the OVD. And it becomes much easier to establish the OVD if you know that your rims can make perfect contact throughout their whole surface. And it's much easier to avoid introducing any errors. So on the second appointment, we will do just that. We will do the actual jorage and we will mark the midline and make sure that during the jorage, the midlines of the upper and the lower match. So we know we haven't introduced a lateral error. You can uh, build up the, the lower rim to be at exactly the same level in the anteroposterior direction with the upper one. So that allows you also to check that you haven't introduced an anteroposterior error. I don't know if you, mm -hmm. you, if you, if you follow me. I follow you. I've never done yeah. that before because my worry was that I, I thought that Whatever AP difference you have between the upper wax rim and lower wax rim will dictate the incisive of classification. And by having the wax almost like class three... That will give you the, the overjet that you want. But what you can do is after you've established the overjet that you want clinically and you check the lower lip support as well and make sure that the, the lower lip sits at the right position as well, you can use a different color wax and add some extra mm. wax on the articulator to make the anterior, the leading edge of the lower rim level with the maxillary one. So then when you take them back into the mouth and you do the, the second part of the jorage, you will be able to see whether the two match exactly. If you see the, the mm -hmm. lower rim being more anteriorly, you know that you have not achieved the retreated position of the mandible. So yeah, that, that's another way. The patient has protruded. And by using mm -hmm. a different color wax, then you can easily just remove it before setting up the teeth. Or if you, you can you can measure the, the, over by, the overjet that you wanted and then instruct the lab that, you know, where I have my wax rim on the lower, I want you to set up the lower teeth two millimeters more posteriorly, for example. This is that's another, yeah. that's another mm -hmm. way of mm -hmm. doing it. Another tip that I would like to share for the, for the George is that uh, once you've done all that and you've marked the midlines and uh, the, the crucial rims are perfectly parallel and you're ready to do the George, don't apply the registration material throughout the whole crucial table. Uh, I only apply the registration material from K9 backwards to the molar. This way I can observe clinically with my own eyes that the two wax rims are in contact. So I know my patient is fully closed in the right position and I can see the midlines that I carved that they match perfectly. So you have two wax. You have a left bite and a right bite, essentially. Yes, yes. Okay, uh, fine. But you have, to, you have to be a bit careful if you're using silicone for registration that if you do that, that you're, you're going to be a bit quick because it sets so quickly uh, you don't want to, open, uh, to end up with an open bite. But again, you will mm -hmm. be able to at least, you will be able to see what's going on before you remove this from the patient's mouth. So if need be, just repeat the process. Another trick I, I, I found out, I realized about that recently is that uh, you can use a transparent jewelry registration material, uh, which is used for transferring uh, mock-ups uh, with composites and things like that. Exaclear, memosil, these kind of things. Yes, and you can use that so you can actually see through the registration material that you have perfect contact of the wax rings clinically. And I, I use that a lot in partial denture cases to make sure I have natural tooth contacts where my patient is uh, biting. So I found that to be very useful. So 
yeah, I mean, uh, it, it is feasible to do all of that in one visit, but uh, if you're inexperienced, if it's your, your first few cases at an undergraduate level, I, I prefer my students to do it in, in two visits. I prefer them to get things right rather than trying to do everything quickly and then have to go back. So, so that's the, the I, first. Agreed. It's a, it's, it's a lot to think about with the aesthetics. And, and they say that a great way to learn cosmetic dentistry is by doing complete dentures. Complete dentures will I teach you agree with that. Uh, the, yeah. how much tooth display you have, uh, any nuances you want to put in. And it's just, you know, cosmetic dentists learn complete denture aesthetics first because uh, you get to play and set everything, the right uh, AP level, the right vertical level. It's, it's a good thing to do, I think. I, I totally agree with that. And I, I strongly feel that uh, even if we end up in a world with no dentures patients seeking the conventional complete denture treatment, we still should be teaching uh, some of the complete denture stuff, particularly about the, the tooth setup. This is very important. And all that knowledge can also apply to uh, planning cases for implants digitally. If you know how to do mm-hmm. a tooth setup, you can use that to plan uh, implant cases. And again, it's, it's very important. Going, going back to your in, initial question about <laughs> yes, how, how to avoid getting yourself in a situation where you're, you're placing the dentures in the patient's mouth and you have like a big open bite or something like that. So the, the first yeah. step is to ensure to do all the things we said to, to make sure that your jaw ridge is correct in the first place. The second thing is to, to realize that the, the trial insertion appointment is, is very important. And the trial insertion appointment that you do after the jaw ridge, realistically, your first and your best chance to, to confirm that the jaw ridge was correct. Because when you have to deal with uh, two blocks of wax, which are perfectly parallel to each other, it's, it's easy to, to have a small slide and, and it's easy for it to go undetected. But as soon as you have some cusps on the teeth, as soon as you have some anatomy, it becomes very feasible clinically to be able to detect if there is any interference in the path of closure. And at that stage, if there is, it, it indicates that you did an error in the charge. So uh, you will be able to feel and you'll be able to see the first contact when the patient is guided into the retreated position. And you will be able to feel and to see a slide either in the anteroposterior or the lateral direction. And uh, you can measure it as well. And uh, the, the direction of the slide will be an indication about the direction of the error you had as well. So at, at that stage, it's very important not to rush things, not to get carried away, not to, to give in to patient pressure to have these things uh, finished as quickly as possible, but to take the time to correct the jaw registration before you proceed. I mean, in, in this scenario, if it's a very minor discrepancy, and I'm no expert in complete dentures at all. I've had a little bit of training in DCT posts and stuff, but it's not something I do very regularly. But the way I've managed it in my novice hands and complete dentures is by, if it's a very minor prematurity, just like a little bit, I might just heat the wax around that one tooth or that, that region and get the, and guide the patient again to close in and let that tooth just intrude a little bit and, and, and get the balance. Is, is that a good way to do it? Is there a better way to, to try and correct it? Because the other way I've done uh, in, before we you know, cover all the ways is if it's a big discrepancy, I'll do a pre-centric check record. So I'll basically record the bite yes. around that massive interference and let the lab do it on the articulator. So yes. tell me about the different ways to correct this at the trine. Absolutely. There's, there's many different ways to correct it, but it all depends on how big of an error you have to deal with. So how do we define a big error? If you look at the, the old textbooks, uh, which I, I totally agree with, an occlusal error is considered to be uh, substantial if it's uh, wide, if the slide it causes is wider than a third of a molar cusp width. So we're thinking about uh, any any slide that is more like half a millimeter, 0.7, one millimeter, that, that is big enough. So then you, you have to, to decide, you have to observe what's happening clinically and determine whether it's just that one contact or one particular tooth, in which case... The most sensible approach, yes, is to, to reset the, the tooth, or if you have several of them, which indicate a, a lateral error in your jaw registration. In which case, uh, you can take a pre-contact record and uh, send this back to, to the lab to reset the teeth, or you can re- repeat the jaw edge uh, after removing the offending teeth. So mm. usually, if you have an anteroposterior error, it will be all the posterior teeth, so you can start by removing all the molars, 
and see if the patient can be guided into the treated position correctly. If not, you, you remove the premolars as well. And uh, from one of the two dentures, you don't have to remove them from both of them. Okay, and just replace them with wax and repeat the George. And now you will have the teeth mm. set up, you'll have the anteriors to show you that uh, during the, the new registration, you will have the correct, the, the anticipated overjet, you will have the midline matching. So it will, it will be much easier to correct this in this way. And then just send the dentures mm -hmm. back to the lab and ask them to reset the lower teeth. Now, depending on your level of uh, experience and comfort, you can uh, either then proceed straight to finish if you're 100% certain that everything was done correctly. Or if you're not 100%, the recommended approach is to repeat the trial insertion just to confirm that the George was correct. Uh, I think it's time well spent because it will save you trouble uh, later on. So that the trial insertion is our best chance to confirm the George. And this is very important for people to realize. Before we even start looking at things like the aesthetics or speech or mm -hmm. anything like that, this is the first thing I always do. But it's at the wax your registration and at the try-in where you confirm it, where, the, where you've made a decision whether your patient's incisors are going to be class 1, class 2, class 3, or even are they going to be in complete overbite or incomplete overbite. What is the recommended way to do it best for your patient in front of you? This is another very important uh, and big topic you, you touched upon earlier and we forgot to, to comment on that because we got carried away. I, I strongly feel that complete dentures should try to replicate the natural tooth positions the way they were. Because if you, if you think about it, what, what is our aim in providing people with complete dentures? What are we trying to do? Why do we do it? We, we want to restore the function of mastication. We want to restore speech and we want to restore the aesthetics, the normal appearance as it was before those teeth were lost. The easiest way to do that is by setting up the denture teeth in the initial positions that the natural teeth used to occupy. So this means that when you have a class 1 case, you need to go for a class 1 setup. If you have a class 2 case, you have to go for a class 2 setup. If you uh, run we're out talking of about space, skeletal, right? The skeletal yes. class is what's guiding yes. us. Yeah. So if, if you run out of space, you might have to drop a second premolar from the lower jaw, uh, from the lower denture in a, in a class 2 scenario. Now, if you have a class 3 case, that's where things become interesting. It depends on the, the magnitude of the discrepancy between the, the two jaws. But uh, in some cases, you might be able to get away with it by setting the teeth as an edge-to-edge -edge position, by proclining the upper anteriors a little bit. This might work. You might get away with it. But if you have a, a huge discrepancy, I mean, uh, you have to go for a class 3 setup. It's not going to work otherwise. The, the upper lip will be pushing the upper denture downwards. And even if we were able to do that, the, the patients will not be able to function properly because the way they have learned to function throughout their whole life was as a class 3. So there's no point trying to correct that because it's not something that needs to be corrected. That's how the patient's teeth used to be in the first place. Now, this, this should become apparent at an earlier stage at the George when, you, when you're trying to adjust the wax rims the way you want them. And this uh, should become apparent and it should be taken into consideration when doing the George. If for some reason you, you, you haven't detected that, it, it will become apparent at the trial insertion. Uh, when you do the phonetic tests, when you try to confirm the freeway space, when you look at the patient's aesthetics, it should become apparent that something is wrong. And in some cases, it will be just that, that you, you were trying to re rehabilitate someone at a class one, whereas they used to be a class two. So that's that's not going to work. So you have to go back I and reset I think it's an easy beginner mistake to make. And I definitely, definitely made it uh, before definitely. where you think, you know, automatically you think everything should look like uh, someone just finished orthodontics. And then that's the way. Uh, what about, obviously, the, the skeletal class will guide this as well. But let's get, talk about the nitty gritty of the uh, occlusion. Should the anterior t teeth touch in a complete denture? Let's say, let's go with a class one, because obviously if you've got significantly class 2 1 we know that anterior yep. teeth won't touch so if you've got a class 1 do you like for there to be centric stops on the anterior denture teeth or just keep them on the posteriors on the posteriors uh, I think uh, it, it, it's uh, sensible that if, if you have a very tight occlusion and you have occlusal contacts and on the anteriors as well 
this means that the, the moment the patient starts to make a small slide in protrusion, it will apply forces trying to destabilize uh, the denture. So you don't want to, you have to, you want to have a little bit of freedom, but not much, like 1.5 millimeters uh, should be enough. You don't want more than that. Now, th there's a problem here that a lot of patients obviously are not familiar with uh, prosodontic concepts, so they might not be happy with that. They might feel that I, I have a gap at the front and I can't bite. So it's something that uh, has to be explained to the patient at an earlier stage. And uh, of course, it, again, it has to be judged on a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, if you have a case with uh, plenty of uh, bone and a big ridge and you don't expect to have any stability issues, you might be able to get away with it by having uh, anterior contacts as well in ICP. But if you have a case with uh, a lot of resorption, this becomes increasingly important to allow them a, a little bit of freedom of movement in the anteroposterior direction. Have you got time to discuss the balanced occlusion and lingualized occlusion? I, I have, but uh, I, I warn you that this is a discussion that may take another 100 years. But uh, <laughs> Let, Let's try and do it in, uh, in 10 to 12 minutes. Uh, let's try and minutes, do a service. 10 minutes about <laughs> balanced occlusion. Okay, an introduction to An introduction to Okay, so... Balanced occlusion, as far as I, I know it, is a fundamental thing, is a patient with a complete tensure bites together, both sides, as you said, the molars, premolars hit at the same time. That's a, a fundamental truth I think we can all agree with, that they must hit, you know, you don't want one side hitting, then the second side hitting, that's going to destabilize the denture. It's a very basic concept. But what are the other guidelines that we should be using on complete dentures when it comes to balanced occlusion? And then I want to talk about lingualized occlusion. What is it? And is this the way that, because the textbook, I think there's three or four different ways to set up your denture articulation movements, which is the accepted way that you follow? following on from that. Okay, first of all, let me let me say this, that uh, there's different, uh, as you said, different occlusal concepts. Okay, so you have uh, balanced occlusion, you have lingualized occlusion, and you have uh, unbalanced occlusion or group function, and then you have monoplane occlusion. We can forget about monoplane occlusion because no one's using it anymore because... Uh, what is, know, just explain what monoplane is. Monoplane is when you use non-anatomic teeth, which are completely flat and posteriorly. So uh, the problem with that is that uh, the forces transmitted through the denture to the underlying ridge have been shown to be of uh, greater magnitudes because of the flat occlusal anatomy, making it harder to penetrate through the bolus. So it's something that it's not, it's not really used uh, nowadays that much. So uh, I don't think it's uh, very relevant. As far as uh, balanced occlusion is concerned, again, this is just my, my personal opinion based on uh, my teaching and uh, all the readings I've done. But uh, it's, it is not considered necessary. Why? Well, first of all, let's say what balanced occlusion means. It is defined as a bilateral, simultaneous, anterior and posterior occlusal contacts of the teeth, both in centric and eccentric positions. Okay. And uh, it's a biomechanical concept that uh, its primary aim is to enhance stability of the dentures in function. So here is where the... I mean, it makes perfect sense as a biomechanical concept. I, I fully agree with that. But here's where the criticism starts and uh, go back into the, the 60s and 70s. The famous quote by Shepard that enter bolus exit balance. What does this mean? That the, the moment you have a bolus of food uh, in the working side, as the, the mandible is trying to close on the working side, the, the teeth on the working side will come into contact with the bolus long before the teeth on the non-working side will be anywhere near making contact. So it means that the masticatory forces will start being exerted from the bolus to the dentures on the non-working side a long time before any balancing contacts are even there. So uh, if there is any issue with stability, this will materialize as well before those balancing contacts uh, happen to help stabilize the, the lower denture. 
the, the second and just uh, to make balance tangible on the, on the articulator you, you try and set this up and for those who follow it they do it on the patient's mouth so that if the patient is grinding to the right the working side the right side are touching but also the left side are still touching so that there's no tipping is that what we this is mean, this is right? what balance yep. uh, postulates that you should have uh, contacts on the non-working side as well to help stabilize mm-hmm. the denture now the, the, there's, there's other issues with that now uh, you mentioned articulator so I know this is, this is a huge discussion, but uh, it, it is a fact that articulators do not represent 100%, cannot simulate 100% accurately the function of the stomatognathic system. Uh, we, we know that for a fact. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a close approximation, and it's, it's a very good effort at that. But uh, we know nowadays that the, the mandibular movements is, are much more complex in nature than uh, the simplified concept of the articulator. So, for example, what uh, used to be the, the concept of the, the hinge uh, movement of the mandible has been uh, rejected because we, we know nowadays from clinical uh, studies that uh, there are instantaneous centers of rotation. So for every given position of the mandible, the, the center of rotation of the mandible changes because the, the whole mandible moves as a rigid body mm-hmm. that it is. So the question is, when you do your complete denture case, do you use a fully adjustable articulator? And if you do so, do you use a pantograph as well to determine the exact point of rotation? And then you will spend the time clinically to take all the patient records, the protrusive record, the lateral records, and go back to the fully adjustable articulator and apply all the settings for that specific case. Because I don't know many people that do, and I don't. And I mean, it's. I was actually looking if, whether I can buy a pantographic Facebook, and I, I couldn't find one. Okay, so... <laughs> What do most people, let's not hide behind their fingers, what do most people do? They, they use semi-adjustable articulators, which is perfectly fine, but they use them in average settings, don't uh-huh, they? Uh-huh. Yes. So it's effectively the same as using an average value articulator that may mm-hmm. or may mm-hmm. not accept a face bore record. Okay, So mm-hmm. we know from clinical studies, it has been shown that use of a face bore, not using a face bore in complete denser construction, did not have any demonstrable impact on patient satisfaction or any improvement in masticatory performance. So we know that for a fact. So going back, you're, you're telling me that you try to set up the teeth in, to achieve that, those balancing contacts on an articulator, which is not being set up with patient-specific settings, and it's effectively being used as an average value articulator. And then you expect those contacts to be present in the patient's mouth as well, because the answer is they, they won't. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and even if they were, it, again, it has been shown that these contacts are lost soon after insertion, uh, because what happens is that you will have a, a little bit more uh, adjustment of the mucosa under the occlusal loads from the new dentures, or you will have a little bit of bone resorption, or you will have a little bit of wear on the teeth. So these uh, supposed contacts, uh, it's very likely that they, they disappeared soon after insertion, or the, pa- the patient might assume a slightly different mandibular position during closure. So that's that, as far as the balancing contacts are concerned. So Does that let, mean we don't have to worry about excursions then? It, it doesn't mean we don't have to worry about excursions. <laughs> it, it, it means that uh, I think it's a futile exercise trying to achieve that balance even if you if you spend the time to, to sit down with the articulator yourself and set up all the teeth to achieve those balancing contacts, again, you would have other issues. And another issue is in uh, what happens in protrusion. So this is a totally different uh, situation than uh, what we have already discussed about. Because in protrusion, balance, occlusion uh, postulates that you should have posterior balancing contacts bilateral. Okay. If we look at what happens on a, on a dentate subject, uh, when we try to protrude, the, the anterior incisal guidance will dictate posterior disclosure. On someone who's a dentulus, it will be the condylar guidance that will determine uh, the posterior disclosure because there are no teeth. So when we set up the teeth in balanced occlusion to, to achieve these posterior balancing contacts in protrusion, it means that someone would need to have either a very steep occlusal plane, which is mm. 
not uh, realistic, uh, or you would need to have an overly exaggerated compensating curve, or you would need to have uh, denture teeth with very high cusps, or you would have to reduce the incisal guidance in order to allow these posterior balancing contacts to occur. But if you do so, that, so you that might basically start... you're going for the opposite of anterior guidance. You don't want the uh, anterior guidance to take over because that will cause the tipping forces. Yes, exactly. So to, to achieve balance and protrusion, it means that you have to, to reduce the incisal guidance by, by setting up the teeth with a reduced overbite mm -hmm. and overjet, overbite, reduced mm -hmm. overbite. So, but this may result to aesthetic problems or spitting problems or swallowing problems. So it is very difficult to achieve. And the way they used to achieve it in the past was with uh, overly exaggerated compensating curves. That's how they used to do it. Or in some cases, mm -hmm. they would have a ramp of acrylic behind the second molar. The, and that ramp would follow the the inclination of the, the retromolar pad, and that would be where the posterior balancing contacts would occur. Wow. Uh, so it's it's not something that is uh, practical, and it, it takes such a long time to try to set up the teeth in balance on an articulator because of all the limitations we, we just discussed. But what if you sit down with your patient and, and you do it all on the patient? Is it is it still worth doing it? Because as soon as you put the bolus in, then it's gone again. So is it worth even spending time with your patient to, to grind in the, the balance occlusion? I don't think so. I don't think so. And uh, I will explain to you why. Go going back, uh, we said that we want to try and set up the teeth uh, as close as possible to the natural tooth position, isn't it? When we're uh, rehabilitating with complete dentures. So we know that in the natural dentition, you don't want to have any contacts on the non-working side. These are considered interferences. These are considered pathological. So the, the whole concept of balance stems from uh, our worry, our stress that our dentures are going to be unstable. And we need to do something mechanically to stabilize them. Okay, so I think this is a, this is a negative approach. I think the best way to go on about it is to, to start not by assuming that you're going to have problems. To, tr to start building the dentures, assuming that everything will go right. And if you do all the things like the impression procedures, if you use the, the permanent bases, it will be become apparent at an early stage whether you have stability issues or not. So when you're adjusting your wax rooms, and you, we said earlier that you, you need to ensure that the wax rooms occupy the same space in the patient's mouth that the natural teeth eventually will, then it will become apparent if you're having any stability issues. And then I say it's okay to compromise and start altering these natural tooth positions, like try to get the posteriors a bit closer to the crest of the ridge, which is not necessarily the case. Uh, try to get those balancing contacts if you, if you have the time to, to be bothered by it and uh, this will uh, solve the problem. But I do not assume uh, at the start of every case that I'm, oh, I'm going to have a problem. It's like it's like walking down the sidewalk and, and you, you see a banana peel and say, oh, no, I'm going to fall down. I mean, <laughs> try to avoid it in the first place. Try to avoid having stability issues in the first place. And this is feasible if you're using permanent bases because you will know at an early stage of construction how stable, how well supported, and how retentive your dentures are going to be. Mm -hmm. Now, in, in this direction, uh, a new concept that uh, helps a little bit to simplify things is lingualized occlusion. Effectively, it's, a, it's an evolution of the balanced occlusion. It just makes uh, it this technically... This is what you follow, yeah, lingualized? Uh, I, I normally go for uh, unbalanced occlusion. I normally go for group function. Okay. So uh, mm -hmm. I don't even go for lingualized occlusion. I, again, because it is it is an artificial biomechanical concept with the sole aim of trying to stabilize a lower denture. So this this is music uh, to my ears. This is this is this is easier to do. And uh, look, I, 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 I've, yeah. Let's get some things straight. This is not my personal opinion. So, okay, there are, there are published articles in the literature. There's some. Uh, there's an amazing article by Gunnar Carlson uh, talking about different dogmas in prosthodontics. There's an article about uh, complete denture occlusion, a more recent one uh, by Goldstein. I can uh, send you links to, to the references if you want. And what this study showed is that 
there is no evidence whatsoever that balanced occlusion has a benefit over lingualized occlusion, over monoplane occlusion, over group function, unilaterally balanced occlusion. There is no clinical evidence that patients are more satisfied when we employ one occlusal scheme over the other. There is no mm -hmm. clinical evidence that masticatory performance is improved when you employ one occlusal scheme over the other. So I think the, the way we should interpret this, because, uh, okay, it doesn't mean that occlusion doesn't matter. We'll just set up the teeth wherever you want and that's it. The way I interpret it is this. If you spend the time and if you, you know what you're supposed to be doing and do all the procedures correctly and you set up the teeth in a way that you can achieve tight, correct interdigitation in ICP, you set up the teeth so that you don't have any interferences in the path of closure and you don't have any interferences in the lateral excursions and the patient can actually have a little bit of freedom of movement in protrusion and in lateral excursion. What it means is that patients adapt so well to whatever occlusal scheme we give them that it works and they're equally satisfied whether you spend five hours trying to get that balanced occlusion or whether you spend half an hour to get a unilaterally balanced occlusion. And this is a testament to the amazing capacity of the stomatognathic system more than anything else. But, but it's true. Mm -hmm. we, we don't have any evidence to support that we should be going for balance. And we don't have any evidence against it either. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to, uh, to be judgmental here and say that, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. But uh, I just but don't... I'm for making processes easier and more efficient and just conducive to all dentists. And it just sounds like a good deal to me to go for a unbalanced group function type occlusion. But you, you mentioned a good point. You check to make sure that you've got stable bases. You check to make sure that the, the come tool, you've got a nice single path of closure. So no deflection. You're not hitting cusps and returning yes. back. So, so as long as you've got a nice... Tap, tap, tap on their complete dentures. There's no movement. But then to achieve, you said, give them a bit of freedom. So if we look at the concepts of freedom and centric, so just some wiggle room. So instead of the, the cuspal incline starting straight away, having like a flat area in the middle to allow the jaw to have some space, is that the kind of uh, teeth setups that you, that you do? No, just uh, what I meant was just uh, to avoid having uh, denser teeth with very high cusps. Uh, mm. I mean, if you go yeah. just I don't shallower know, cusps, it, shallower cusps, yes, and that's all that's needed. Uh, I'm not going. I'm not talking about uh, flat, non-anatomic teeth. I'm talking about mm -hmm, anatomical mm -hmm. teeth with uh, a reasonable amount of uh, cusp height and inclination. Uh, obviously, depending on the case as well. But uh, th this is the whole uh, modern approach, the Scandinavian approach of trying to simplify things, and it's all evidence-based. It's not a matter of opinion. So until a day comes that we have some strong evidence that the, the traditional way, the, the balanced occlusion is better than the others, uh, I don't see any benefit in trying to teach my students to, to go through all that extra workload with all those extra margins of error without any tangible clinical advantage. Uh, what is the point in doing that? Uh, and again, don't get me wrong, I don't mean to say that balanced occlusion is wrong or that it's, you shouldn't be doing it. I just don't see the benefit in doing it. It's exactly mm -hmm. the same uh, with the Facebook. It's exactly the same. I mean, so, so I know some of my colleagues might, they actually do hate me for that, for saying things like that. But I do teach in an undergraduate level that, you know, it's not the material, it's not the impression material that will make a difference when you're doing complete denture. It's not like you have to use zinc oxide and use paste because that is the best. I mean, I have no evidence for that. And again, you know, if you look at those same references I quoted, the, there are studies which show that patients could not perceive any difference between complete dentures made with alginate or silicone or zinc oxide and eugenol paste as a secondary impression material. So again, it doesn't mean to say that you can use whatever you want and it won't matter at all. What it means is that if your impression is correct, if it's correctly extended, if, it, if the borders of your impression tray are correctly extended and have the correct morphology, both things will work. Silicone will work, polyether will work, zinc oxide and eugenol will work. As long as you know what you're doing and you design your custom tray accordingly. 
if I summarize it, there are so many different things to look at to get a successful denture uh, and the occlusion will not be the be all and end all. The occlusion, if you, uh, as long as you take some care to make sure there's no deflections, uh, nice bite left and right uh, and then you don't go for overly crazy cusps and you uh, have a good patient that can adapt, then I think that is uh, sound like a, a winning formula to me. Yeah, pa patients do adapt. This has been proven uh, beyond any doubt. It's not, again, it's not my personal opinion so I'm stating here. There's, uh, there's clinical studies which show that when the uh, complete dentures were rated by patients and prosthodontists, there was a uh, perfect agreement. There was, there was very good agreement between them when a denture was bad, but there was no agreement on when a denture was good. So <laughs> effectively, this means, I mean, some of these studies were done at uh, guys as well. Mike Fenlon uh, was a lead of, uh, on many of those papers. Patients can easily adapt to a wide variety of different denture construction techniques and occlusal schemes and impression techniques so long as we avoid the significant errors. So this is, this is a struggle, not trying to, to achieve perfection because we cannot with a complete denture, but trying to avoid any significant errors. And the stomatognathic system is such an amazing device that it will adapt to it as well. And hence, most patients function adequately with their complete dentures and they're happy with them. Of course, there is a small minority. I mean, I couldn't give you a figure that will apply universally, but I, at least I know in my, in my personal experience, it's a very, very small minority of patients who can never get used to a complete denture. And the, the simple explanation for that is simply because they don't want a complete denture to begin with. And it's perfectly understandable mm -hmm. who, who would blame you for that. And uh, we, we have to, to, I don't know how much time more time we have, but we, we have to discuss a little bit about the Magill consensus as well, because we're talking about all these things. We're talking about occlusal concepts. Yeah, the, 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 I mean, we're talking about occlusal concepts, but you know, the Magill consensus was such a, such a big thing that, that really changed the, the standards, I guess, right, that we're aiming for. Yes, because we were talking about uh, occlusal concepts which, which, are, which were developed over 100 years in order to solve the problem of instability of the lower denture. And now we're, for the last 20 years now, we, we have been practicing in a world where we say that we shouldn't even be offering conventional complete dentures to dentureless patients unless it's a strong uh, medical contraindication or something. So as soon as uh, you have a mandibular twin implant retained over denture, uh, it throws everything out the window insofar as our concerns about the uh, instability of the lower denture. So why not try to recreate a more naturally occurring occlusal schemes like uh, group function or even canine guidance? I mean, there are studies which show that conventional complete denture wearers were equally happy with canine guidance than uh, they were with uh, balanced occlusion. They didn't have any functional issues with it. So. Yeah, I'm glad we talked about this very uh, controversial topic. Occlusion in, in inclusion, any part of dentistry uh, can be controversial, but I, I, I really like that you gave some real-world advice, and uh, I think that's something that we can all go away and practice and think about. It's definitely helped me in setting up the occlusions, complete dentures. I, I do sometimes get carried away trying to do all the lingualized occlusion and stuff, but what you're saying is that there's no real evidence to support it, and so uh, I'm going to allow my patient to have a, a period of adaptation because they can. Uh, Andreas, thanks so much for, for giving, up, giving up your time today we obviously went a deep dive into complete dentures and we only barely scratched the surface i appreciate that i uh, would love to have you back again one day to to do talk about uh, partial dentures and occlusal sure. occlusal setups uh, uh, with that uh, before we say goodbye to you uh, tell us more about uh, the, you know how if anyone wants to send some work to you to your lab any educational th things that you have going on that we can learn more from you uh, maybe i can uh, give you a link to, uh, to an email address so uh, someone can uh, communicate with me and Depending on uh, what uh, in what way I may be able to to help, I will be happy to. That would be great. So if you send that over to me, and I'll be able to to pass it to anyone who needs it. Uh, but sure. we'll, we'll welcome you back. Have a lovely uh, rest of your day. I hope you get some video game time tonight uh, and <laughs> enjoy so well. <laughs> uh, enjoy your time in sunny Cyprus, my friend. 
Thank you very much. Well, there we have it, guys. Complete Dentures made way easier. Thank you so much for Rupert for recommending Andreas to come on the show. He was brilliant, wasn't he? Like so many different gems that we can apply straight away, kind of like myth busting and overcoming some of the previous dogmas in removable prosthodontics. Since you listen all the way to the end, why don't you answer a few questions? Get that CPD on the app. As always, you can access on the website www.protrusive.app or via iOS and Android. It's actually easier to make your login and sign up via the laptop, and then you can use that same login on iOS or Android. For any of the resources that we promised, they will be in the show notes below. And if you have made it all the way to the end, let me know by giving this video a thumbs up on YouTube, or if you're one of the audio listeners, then I'd love to read your reviews. I'd really appreciate that. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. Once again, I'll catch you same time, same place next week.